you don't have a Bible with you, you can open up in the Pew Bible in front of you to page 26. This is a, just another one of those big chapters. Lots of story going on here, lots of details, and we're not going to cover a lot of it. Um, but if there's anything that stands out to you, any questions that come up, you can go to slido.com and text um, in your questions using the code REVCDA. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for your word. God, there's just so much um, emotion and passion and just humanity like oozing off the pages of this chapter. Um, you are so uh, good to be honest in the way you communicate um, the story of your people. And... Um, I'm just thankful for that, that we can, that we can read this and we, we don't see uh, shallow heroes. Uh, we see uh, real men and women that are, that are struggling in various ways. And, and that's, that's where we find ourselves today, uh, real men and women who are uh, seeking to follow you and struggling in various ways. And God, I just pray that as we just scratch the surface of some of the things that we can glean from this text this morning, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would move in in powerful ways, um, uh, in ways that, that no one can plan, um, but that we all, that we all need. In, in Jesus' name, amen. So at various points uh, in my um, time with my children, when they were little, uh, we would go swimming. And those of you that have little kids or have had little kids, there's this point where you're, you're trying to teach your kids how to swim. And, and they can't really swim yet. They're, they're, they're kind of getting the hang of it. But there's that time where they're standing on the edge of the pool, and you're in the pool, and you invite them to jump, right? Come on. Come on in the pool. I will catch you. And the most heartbreaking thing for a parent, I think, is for the kid to go like, I don't think you will. I don't know about that. Maybe that's never happened to you. Uh, that's happened to me a few times. Uh, obviously, I'm not a very trusting parent. But um, there is this, this moment in a relationship like that where, where you just have to put trust in someone. The child on the side of the pool has to decide, like, I believe that this person calling me into the water is going to take care of me, is going to keep me safe is going to provide for me. And it's a question of trust. And this chapter in Genesis, there's a whole lot going on here. Moses is such a great storyteller. But what I want to focus on here is who these people are putting their trust in and what the consequences of that trust are. So we're going to take a look at Jacob and Rachel and Laban specifically, and where they're putting their trust. And we're going we're gonna to do it a little bit out of order. So we're going to start in verse 52, all the way at the end of the chapter. Um, <clears throat> Laban says, this mound is a witness, and the marker is a witness that I will not pass beyond this mound to you, and you will not pass beyond this mound and this marker to do me harm. The God of Abraham and the gods of Nahor and the gods of their father will judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. 
Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and invited his relatives to eat a meal. So they ate a meal and spent the night on the mountain. Laban got up early in the morning, kissed his grandchildren and daughters and blessed them. And then Laban returned to his home. So after all of this passionate arguing about who's right and who stole what and what belongs to whom, they decide, okay, we're not, we're, we just need to make a deal here. And the deal is basically, we're going to put a mound in the ground and I'm going to stay on this side of the mound and you're going to stay on that side of the mound and you're not going to hurt me and I'm not going to hurt you. Uh, and you're going to promise not to marry any more women, even though I've kind of started that process for you, Jacob. And that's going to be the deal. And we're going to swear by the gods that we serve. And Laban swears. He throws in the God of Abraham there, but he also swears on the gods of his fathers, the gods of of his grandfather and his father. But Jacob doesn't do that. Jacob swears by the fear of his father Isaac. And this is is the title that gets used in this chapter for Yahweh, for for the God that we serve. And it's kind of a weird title. Um, Especially, I think, for modern people, we, the idea of fear is, is strange to us, and, and it's rightly so. Fear is almost always negative in the Bible, except when that fear is directed towards God. Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. And there are literally hundreds of commands in the Bible to fear God. Even, even Jesus says it. He says, Uh, In Luke 12, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that can do nothing more, but I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And I I love the tension here that Jesus creates, right? Fear God don't be afraid. And you go like, which one is it? I don't know. (laughs) But there is this this reality in who God is and how we relate to him that fear is an appropriate expression of that relationship. And and the classic uh, illustration that I love for this comes from C.S. Lewis's line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, where Lucy, the girl, asks Mr. Beaver about Aslan the lion. And she says, then is he, he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. You don't, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. And this is such a beautiful tension for us to live in, that that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere. He's, He's the creator of the universe. We sang some about those truths this morning, but he's good. And so Jesus, in the same time, can say, this is the one that you should fear, but also don't be afraid. R.C. Sproul articulates it like this. He says, a child has a fear or an anxiety of offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or even of punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who, in that child's world, is the source of security and love. And I think all of us have probably at some point or another felt that really healthy fear of like, I want to do right by this person. I don't want to let them down. And this is the reality that is beginning to dawn on Jacob. We've seen him progress from someone who really uh, has no understanding of who God is over the course of the last 20 years to really grow in his understanding of God and of his faith. And it's going to continue to grow even further. He's still got a ways to go, but he's beginning to trust God more and more. 
And so for the rest of this morning, what I want to do is using this idea of Jacob's trusting in Yahweh and Laban's trusting in the gods of his fathers, I want to compare and contrast what those two things look like. So we'll start with trusting in Yahweh. We see that Jacob, first of all, trusts in God for direction. In the first three verses of Genesis 31, we read, Now Jacob heard what Laban's sons were saying. Jacob has taken all that was our father's and has built this wealth from what belonged to our father. Jacob saw from Laban's face that his attitude toward him was not the same as before. And so the Lord said to him, Go back to the land of your ancestors, to your family, and I will be with you. So the last time that God spoke to Jacob was in chapter 28, when Jacob is fleeing from his brother Esau, and that was 20 years ago. God promised then that he would take care of him, give him offspring, and then return him to the land. And now God speaks to Jacob and says, it's time to go. And it's interesting to me that that God's communication with Jacob is pretty sparse, isn't it? We were talking in community group this week about faith, and and someone said that that faith is this this thing that springs up in the silence, right? Like if if God is moving constantly in our lives and and blessing us here and and answering that prayer there and doing this thing there and and everything seems to be going great, doesn't mean we don't have faith, but faith doesn't really bubble to the surface. But when, but when God seems silent, when it feels like things aren't going well and we're not sure what's happening next and we kind of feel like we're out on our own, that's when faith is really cultivated because it's that, that opportunity to trust in the thing that we can't see in the moment. And this is, this is really a good thing because we have this idea that spiritual growth happens in our lives primarily when God is big and loud, right? We, we went to that event and it was awesome and oh my gosh, the spirit moved or, or some amazing thing happened. And I don't want to discount that. That can be a really beautiful thing. But what if it is in the period of, of silence, a season where you're feeling your way blindly in the dark, so it seems, that that's the soil that God is using to grow you, to make you more Christ-like. And it's easy to look at this story and and have an attitude of jealousy. I I feel this way sometimes. Man, God has never spoken to me out loud. I've never had visions of what to do. But think of how little Jacob heard from God for 20 years. He He had some stories from his grandfather and his father about how God had moved in their lives. He had this amazing dream experience where he saw the stairway to heaven. But that was 20 years ago. He's been silently walking through his life on that as the basis for his faith. But conversely, like, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have God's Word written down for our benefit. We have the community of God's people given to us to speak wisdom into our lives. And we have thousands of years of the history of God's faithfulness to his church to reflect on. And so I just think it's important to to recognize for my own heart that when God gets silent in my life, it's easy to get upset about that or to get concerned about that or to be frustrated. But I wonder if it's the time that God is silent that he is calling us to draw on him more deeply through the means of grace that he's given us in his people and in his word and by the Holy Spirit. We see that that God in his faithfulness to Jacob provides direction. Secondly, God provides provision. 
Starting in verse 4, Jacob and Rachel and Leah called to the field where his flocks were, and he said to them, I can see from your father's face that his attitude towards me is not the same as before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that with all my strength, I've served your father and that he's cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God has not let him harm me. If he said the spotted sheep will be your wages, then all the sheep were born spotted. And if he said the streaked sheep will be your wages, then all the sheep were born streaked. And God has taken away your father's herds and given them to me. When the flocks were breeding, I saw in a dream that the streaked and spotted and speckled males were mating with the females. And in that dream, the angel of God told, said to me, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, look up and see all the males that are mating with the flocks are streaked and spotted and speckled. For I've seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you poured oil on the stone marker and made a solemn vow to me. Get up, leave this land, and return to your native land. Then Rachel and Leah answered them, Do we have any portion or inheritance in our father's family? Are we not regarded by him as outsiders? For he has sold us and has certainly spent our purchase price. In fact, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. So do whatever God has said to you. So Jacob has heard from God, and he kind of expands how that message went in this vision to his wives. And I think this is, this is an important like side note. Um, Jacob is, has heard from God. He knows what he, he believes God has for him, but he, has, he needs to bring his wives on board, right? We've talked about just the, the mess that is polygamy. Do not recommend. And yet, there is a principle here. Married men, your wife is your partner in your walk of faith. She is not your subordinate. And, and Jacob knows this. Jacob brings his wives into this conversation of where they're going to go in their journey of faith and needs their agreement. He shares that God has spoken to him and told him to leave. He says that Yahweh ultimately is responsible for his wealth. God is behind his miraculous animal breeding. We talked about this last week, but the whole sticks and the troughs that like, that doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't have to because God was doing something miraculous. God has been his provision. And for us, this is another hard thing because as New Testament, New Covenant Christians, we're not necessarily promised material wealth, but we are told to ask God for provision and that God knows and cares about our needs. Jesus says this in the prayer that we're taught to pray, give us today our daily bread. A little later on, he, he says it like this. He says, don't worry, saying what we, will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I got the opportunity to share this with my, my youngest last night when she was freaking out about what she was going to wear to church. Like, you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Tomorrow will take care of itself. But this is, this is a hard thing for us, right? Like, is God going to provide? What does that look like? What does that mean? Are we going to be wealthy? Jacob is wealthy. Maybe some of us are. Maybe some of us aren't. But the reality is God is responsible for our provision. Jacob sees that the God of Bethel has taken care of him even while his uncle tried to cheat him for years. And his wives agree with his assessment. What they say is that they are, um, 
They have nothing to gain from staying connected to their father's house. John Walton says this, the bride price paid by the husband's family was supposed to be held in trust in the event it was needed to provide for the wife if she were abandoned or widowed. Jacob, of course, gave no bride price, but his labor, so the equivalent of his wages, should have been set aside for the women. Apparently, that was never done. Jacob's labor has benefited Laban, not the women. Thus, it is as if he has sold them to Jacob. If their father's house holds no economic security for them, they have no reason to stay. It would have been that if Jacob had died or left them, there would have been this nest egg held in trust by their father to provide for them in their widowhood. And the the women say, our dad's just spent all that. Laban has cheated his own daughters out of their inheritance. And they both recognize that Yahweh has been their provision these 20 years. God is trustable for direction and provision, but also for protection. Verse 22, on the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. So he took his relatives with him, pursued Jacob for seven days, and overtook them in the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night. Watch yourself, God warned him. Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. When Laban overtook Jacob, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban and his relatives also pitched their tents in the hill country of Gilead. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You have deceived me and taken my daughters away like prisoners of war. Why did you secretly flee from me, deceive me and not tell me? I would have sent you away with joy and singing with tambourines and lyres, but you didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters. You have acted foolishly. I could do you great harm, but last night the God of your father said to me, watch yourself. Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban here acts all hurt. Like he's, he suffered this injustice. And it's, I mean, it's probably true that Jacob is, was not acting hospitably by fleeing in the night. But the way Laban responds is he comes out with a war party, all his relatives. And even says he has the intent to bring harm to Jacob. But God steps in, in a dream to Laban and says, hey, don't mess with Jacob. Don't touch him. And I'm not sure that this is something that maybe most of us think about because maybe we're not in general in a lot of danger. So we don't really have practice in trusting God for our protection many times. But the reality is, is that no one can hurt you if God says otherwise. Psalm 91 says, "The, the one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say concerning the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. In the book of Hebrews, the author in chapter 13 says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? It's interesting, the author of Hebrews connects how dependent we are on money, on our sense of self-protection, and then he asks the question, what can another human being do to you? And the, the rhetorical answer is nothing. As one of God's people, you are completely protected from harm, safe in the will of God. But this kind of begs the question, well, like, what happens, though, when bad things do happen? 
And this is, this is one of the biggest dem- dilemmas in, in our faith. If God is good and loves you and is powerful enough to protect you, why is it that sometimes people who love God are harmed? Why doesn't God show up in the dreams of those that would steal from us or abuse us or slander us and say, hey, don't mess with him. Don't mess with her. And the only one who has a satisfactory answer to that question is God. Because we see in the scriptures and we know in our own world that God sometimes lets his people suffer at the hands of wicked people. And sometimes he intervenes to save them. Maybe you read a couple years ago the story of 26-year-old missionary John Chow. He was um, just passionately in love with Jesus and trained to be a missionary to the North Sentinelese people off the coast of India, living on this small island for something like eight or 10 years. And he did um, uh, rugged like um, wilderness training and he did language training and he did all of these cross-cultural courses to prepare himself to go on this island of a few dozen tribes people that were completely unreached by the gospel and share the message of Christ with them. And he arrived on this island and walked towards the forest. And someone stepped out of the woods and shot him with an arrow and killed him just immediately. And there's all of this, you know, online rhetoric or like, was that stupid? Is he an idiot? Was that, is he a martyr? What does that mean? And we don't know the answer to that. All we know is that he was doing what he thought the Lord was leading him to do, and he was willing to give his life for the gospel. And then you read the, another story of, of Brother Andrew, who smuggled Bibles into communist Romania. And there's this story he tells of being stopped at this checkpoint, and the car in front of him is just being ripped apart in the search by the guards. The seats and the trunk and under the seats and the, the a strip search for the driver, and they're looking for anything that might be contraband going in to Romania. And Brother Andrew has his little car filled with Bibles. And so he decides the, the only way that I'm going to get through this is by the will of God. And so he takes one of his hidden Bibles and he just puts it on the passenger seat next to him. And he just thinks, I'm, I'm a dead man. This is, this is over. And he, he dry, he's next in line at the checkpoint and he drives up and the guard looks in the window at him, must see the Bible, stands back up and just waves him on. And Andrew, in his, in his memoir on the subject, says he couldn't, just, he couldn't believe what's happening. He, he thinks maybe he's been pulled off to the side for a further search, but no, the guard almost angrily now says, get out of the way, we've got to do another car. And the next car comes up and Andrew looks through his rearview mirror and they just start tearing this car apart looking for stuff. And he goes on into Romania and delivers his Bibles to the Christians there. So why does one of these stories end in the death of a young man who has dedicated himself to being a witness for Jesus and the other one in a miracle for a man who is just as dedicated to the gospel? And the answer is we don't know. Only God knows. And we should be people who are wise. The book of Proverbs is helpful for teaching us wisdom in how we live our lives and what kind of risks we take and and what the best course of action 
in difficult situations and potentially dangerous situations is. But we can trust that God will protect his people from everything that he believes that we need protection from. But the important thing for us today is that before the time that our life is in need of protection, we need to wrestle down, are are we people who trust God? If we are ever, and again, most of us, God willing, will never be in a situation of that kind of danger. Some of us maybe have in our lives. But if that's not been true for you, do the work today to commit to trusting God for your protection when things are dangerous. So we see in this passage that that Jacob sees Yahweh as his deliverer, as his provision, and as his protector. But what about those other gods? I mean, there's lots of options in religion. You You can pick a lot of things. What about the gods of Laban's grandfather and his father? Well, we read in verse 19, when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household idols. So Rachel is in this environment for the last 20 years where her husband is slowly coming to trust Yahweh, this God of of his father and his father. And at the very least, he has decided that Yahweh is going to be his God. And the women, Rachel and Leah, both show something of their faith in the way that they name their children. Last chapter, we talked about all of the kids that got named, and that many of them have names that kind of invoke Yahweh. And so they're all worshiping God to some extent. So why does Rachel steal her father's idols when she leaves? And we aren't told exactly, but I want to I give some, some ideas. The first reason... Idols are potentially enticing is that they're physical. There's something about a physical object or presence or experience that is religiously affirming. And one of the striking things about the God of the Bible is that he is invisible. And this is inconvenient. (laughs) Do you ever wish that, that you could see God? That he would just show up? Visibly and tangibly. And this is, this is hard because the scripture makes it clear that representing God in a physical form is not allowed. As Exodus 20 says, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or in the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. So why are we not allowed to make images of God? Because the reality is God has already made an image of himself. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the physical representation of who God is. And this became a distinguishing feature of the early church. The first Christians were mocked by their secular pagan culture because they didn't have images of their God in their worship spaces. In Hebrews 11, we read, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. 
for by this our ancestors were approved. And this is why we are drawn to idols, because we see them, we sense them, they feel tangible to us, and they don't require us to step out in faith. Most of us probably don't have little statues that we're tempted to bow down to. What does idolatry look like? Uh, It can look like material prosperity, stuff, money in the bank, clothes or homes or cars or electronics. These things can quickly become the source of our trust and our safety because they are tangible, because we have them. I have struggled with the idolatry of my cell phone for many years, and that sounds stupid when you say it, but I feel like everybody in the room knows what I'm talking about. You get in the grocery store and you've got just a slight minute of downtime where you're in line and you just pull it out because I gotta gotta see something, I gotta have something, I'm bored and I can't stand being bored. And so I started by, I, I, I took all the social media accounts off my cell phone and then I took all the video games off my cell phone. And then I uh, turned my cell phone black and white because I read somewhere that it's less tempting to look at when it's black and white. And then I realized that the only thing I had left on my cell phone was my web browser. And what you do when you open a new tab on your web browser is it just shows you a bunch of things that it thinks you might like. And so I would just scroll through all the things that it thought I might like. Sometimes it was right. And so then, this year, this this is my new fight against idolatry. I took my web browser off my phone. And almost daily, I'm in a conversation, and you know the conversation where you're talking about something and you realize the group of people doesn't know the answer. Oh, well, just Google it. And I pull out my phone and I can't. And it makes me angry. And that's how I know I have an idol in my life because it makes me angry. And I'm tempted to like reinstall my browser just so I can come up with the answer to the dumb trivia question that we're talking about. I haven't yet. Still working. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) But physical things, things that we have access to are temptations to idolatry. Why else might Rachel have taken these gods? Maybe because they're familiar. These are the gods that Rachel has grown up with. And it's hard to drop old habits. When you become accustomed to something, when it's become a habit, it it wears grooves in the pathways of your brain and it's hard to shake sometimes. And the reality is that following Jesus requires removing old practices and patterns and habits from our life. Jesus says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. These examples of finding the kingdom of heaven require us to remove all the other things in our life to pursue it. And there are things in our lives that we have trusted in, relied on, maybe even worshipped, that can no longer have that place as we journey with Jesus. Here's a a challenging example. I've been, um, (laughs) strangely, I've been doing some some video work on the side for a financial asset management company out of Ohio. I'm making some like uh, social media videos for them. 
And the CEO of this company just announced that he's running for president. And uh, his name is Vivek Ramaswamy. And um, he wrote this in the Wall Street Journal. We embrace secular religions like climatism, covidism, and gender ideology to satisfy our need for meaning. Yet we can't answer what it means to be an American. The Republican Party's top priority should be to fill this void with an inspiring national identity that dilutes the woke agenda to irrelevance. So that quote says a lot about his platform. I went on his website and, and watched some more of his videos. And um, he's, a, he's a millennial. He's younger than me, which is weird. Uh, but he, he is a Harvard graduate. He's Indian. He's an immigrant. Uh, he's, his parents were immigrants. Uh, couldn't run for president if he was an immigrant. Um, and he went to Harvard, and he's, like a, he's worth like $600 million, and he's a self-made millionaire. And, and he's, he's saying, you know, like, uh, in this video, he says, you know, back when I was a kid, we had hope, and I could, you could do anything you wanted in America. And now, I don't think, if I was born today, I don't think I could do that. And in that quote that I just read, he, he points out idolatry on the political left. I, don't, I mean, I don't know how he's defining climatism, covidism, and gender ideology, but there are aspects of those vague categories that I would say, yeah, we should reject as Christians, especially. But then, but the, what he does is so interesting. These, these leftist ideologies are there to satisfy our need for meaning. Well, what should we do? The Republican Party should fill that need for meaning with an inspiring national identity. And that's, that's the idolatry. That's how insidious it is. This is what America was like back then. This is what we grew up believing. This is what it used to be like. And this is where we should get our meaning. And it may very well be true that things aren't great in a lot of ways in America right now. And maybe they were better for some people in the past. And maybe there are aspects of that that we should bring back. But the idea that that should be central to who we are, which is what the messaging is, is idolatry. And trusting in the familiar is a really strong pull for us. It can be strong in our politics. It can be strong in our churches. You've all probably heard stories about churches splitting over, like, replacing the carpet because my grandmother sat on that carpet, and how dare you change it, and this is how we've always done it, or changes in worship music or whatever. But this longing for the familiar, this is the way it's always been, don't change it, is a strong pull to idolatry. We cannot, as followers of Jesus, find our identity in any of those things. We cannot put our ultimate trust in them. And we need to recognize that subtle inclusion whenever it comes up, especially politically by the right or the left, both sides of the spectrum do it. It's almost always subtle, but it takes Jesus out of his rightful place on the throne and it puts something else there. And that's why it's an idol. And it's so easy for us to fall for because it feels so good. It feels so familiar. But Rachel might have taken the idols for another reason. She might have taken them because they are controllable. 
And this is probably the most insidious. Idols take power over our lives because we think two strange things at the same time. We think that these things will give us power or safety, provision, direction, whatever. And paradoxically, we think we can control them. The very things that Rachel and her father and the rest of her family have relied on for blessing for generations can be easily stored in a camel pack and sat on. That's kind of weird if you think about it. God thinks it's weird too. In Isaiah 44, he says this amazing set of things. The woodworker stretches out a measuring line and he outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it according to a human form, like a beautiful person to dwell in a temple. He cuts down cedars for his use and he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel and the rain makes it grow. A person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself. He also, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in the fire and he roasts meat on that half and he, he eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm, I see the blaze. And then he makes a god or an idol with the rest of it. He bows down and worships it. He prays to it. Save me for you are my God. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their minds so they cannot understand. And this is ultimately the idol of self, right? This, this foolish work, woodworker who is in control of this whole process of this wood decides I'm going to worship what I am in control of. Are these household idols really in charge here? No, Rachel is. And this is epidemic in our culture. Christopher Wright, in his book, Here Are Your Gods, writes, the positive value of rugged self-reliance easily morphs into the vice of self-worship and narcissism. Relentless and quite shameless narcissism has become characteristic of Western culture. Indeed, in a popular form, it has become a virtue fed by the advertising industry. You owe it to yourself because you're worth it. Believe in yourself. We see these kind of messages all the time because we believe that we are the center of the universe. Really interesting example of this. You probably have all seen the He Gets Us campaign. And this is really f just fascinating to me. It's about a, a billion dollar ad campaign uh, funded by Christian organizations to create ads about Jesus. There were two of them that ran during the Super Bowl. They, were, they cost $20 million just for the two ads. And they basically say, Jesus, well, they say Jesus gets us, right? Whatever, whatever, wherever you find yourself in life, whatever is going on in your world, yeah, he gets you. And I, that's great. That's a beautiful message. I'm, and, and, and they're good ads. They're really well done. And, and I don't want to throw a lot of shade. But notice, I'm sure the marketing agency did a bunch of research. What's going to work in this ad campaign? Well, everyone is so self-centered we need to let them know that Jesus understands their problems. And the truth in that is he does. But the crazy thing is this is what we need to tell people for a billion dollars. If Jesus doesn't understand me, why should I care about him? Because I am the most important person in the room. When we 
worship idols, we ultimately end up worshiping ourselves because idols are something that we try to control. So what's the result of trusting in these idols? Verse 29, I could do you great harm, but last night the God of your father said to me, watch yourself, don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you've gone off because you long for your father's family, but why have you stolen my gods? This is such a sad and pathetic sentence. This is a tragedy for Laban. Not only has he experienced the power of Jacob's God through this dream and the threat that he's been given, but his gods have failed him. They have been stolen. Someone has run away with them. They are so powerless that they can just be removed And how does Laban feel about it? He's angry. He wants to do Jacob harm. And this is what happens when you mess with an idol. Wherever wherever there's an idol in your life and somebody pokes on it, it makes you angry. When somebody pushes on my idol, I will respond in anger. I will seek to protect that idol. I will get mad. I will seek to defend it. And it's foolishness, as we see in Laban, but it's the way we operate, but it's a really good diagnostic question for us. What makes you angry? And there are some valid things to get angry about, but it's also possible that there's an idol in your heart that is motivating that anger. Talk about my cell phone. Not having a web browser on my phone makes me angry because I I need it. It's my precious, right? a Lord of the Rings reference for all of you who have no idea what that means. Uh, But it's a signal to me. When I get angry, when 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 I'm walking around the house just muttering to myself because things aren't going my way, what am I getting angry about? Maybe there's an idol in there. And this is hard work. Um, This is a real, I love this picture of the head on Easter Island you can you can you probably recognize those guys. They're they're everywhere over Easter Island, and they're these big idols. But then then they start digging. In this next picture, that's what they really look like. And this is the way idols work: is is maybe there's a little bit that's poking up out of your heart, but in order to get it out, you got to start digging. You start asking questions. What is, what is really going on with me? Why am I angry? Why do I, why do I feel like I need this thing? Why is this something that I can't let go of? Why am I unwilling to trust God here? And there's probably layers that need to be dug away before you can dislodge that idol from your heart. But that's the work that the Holy Spirit will gladly do for you if you let Him. And as we we close this morning, I would just encourage you to make space to invite him to do that work in your life, to begin to step back and think, what, what are my motivations here? What am I feeling in this moment? Why am I reacting this way? Is this, is this a just thing to be doing? Is this something in line with who Jesus is and who who Jesus is calling me to be, or is it, is it not? Is it out of character for someone who follows Christ? 
And then to continue to do the work of thinking, okay, what's behind that? What's underneath that? What has maybe lodged itself deeply in my heart and soul that I need to uproot and remove? You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.